Just Shoot Me was in the 90s. And if you said NBC in the 90s had so many comedies, some were good and some were terrible. But now if you look at NBC, are they doing any comedies? Like maybe two? I, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's the same place, but it's the the tide is clear. So yeah. for somebody to aspire to working on um, wacky, old-timey NBC comedies, it's very foolish. However, if they are a self-starter and and determine what their roadmap is, nobody will stop them. You can't guarantee right. success, but at least you've tried it and you might be successful trying it and pursue right. what you like. You're listening to Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jan. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Screenwriters Need to Hear This. My name is Michael Jammon, and Phil is not here with us today, but I have a special guest. This is our first time ever having a guest on, on our podcast, and I'm absolutely thrilled that it's, you know, in Hollywood, people say, uh, this is my good friend, my, but it's true. Rob, you're my good friend. and Thank you. And, you're my good friend. <laughs> and so it's nice to actually have a good friend kick off uh, my guest on the show. So let me introduce you. This is Rob Cohen, writer-director, and I'm going to scroll through some of your credits so people know who you are sure and um and i'm sorry i'm only i'm only gonna do some of the highlights that i think i'm gonna leave out probably the, the uh someone's i don't because you had rob has a huge resume and you're a writer and a director but you and started some of it is good and if for for those of you who want to make a, a visualization rob also worked on one of your early jobs was the simpsons and the character of millhouse was modeled after him so rob is picture millhouse now older and sadder that's right. So, and also Rob, Rob's Canadian. So I want to talk about how a Canadian breaks into the business. Sure. The whole language barrier, how you learn English. Right. I want to learn how, how we you, figured out yeah, your machines work. So we could. Yeah. I know you, type. you drove a dog sled growing mm -hmm. up and now mm -hmm. they get, now you drive a car. So stuff like Thank that. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So let's begin. Rob's, I guess your first staff job, I guess, was it the Naked Truth? Your big one? No, my very first staff job full time was the Ben Stiller show. Oh, right. We go back even further than that. Ben Stiller, yeah. right. And you yeah. also did Mad TV. The, the, yeah. Hold on. Your credits are crazy good. Like you have a huge list of credits. Naked Truth, uh, Work With Me. I met you on, well, I think I knew you before that, but Just Shoot Me, we worked together. Right. Bet, the Bet Midler Show. Yes. According to Jim. Mm -hmm. According to your credits, you are on According to Jim. Right. Uh, the Jamie Kennedy Experiment. Was that a show or an experiment, Rob? That was a, an experiment that became a show on the WB. See, dots. I don't know what that is. It's a dots was a pilot movie. for NBC. Yeah. And oh, a pilot. How'd you get them there? Father of the Pride. You remember that oh, that yep. animated show? American yep. Dad. I've heard of that one. Yep. Big Bang Theory. Heard of that mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. Twenty Good Years. Mm -hmm. Our friend Marsh McCall created that show. Mm -hmm. Emily's Reasons Why Not. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Oh, you're, you're really going through all the. I'm on IMDb. Debris. Yeah, of course. <laughs> There's more. Life and Times of Tim, which was a riot, that, that yeah. animated show. Marin, which we brought you back. We hired you to be a writer and director on that. We're going to talk yep. about that. Sure. Lady Dynamite with our yep. friend Pam Brady. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. A couple of these I don't, I don't know, so I'm skipping over there. But you also have a, your own show called Hanging with Dr. Z. We're going to talk about that. Sure. And then, But your directing credits are also crazy. Uh, I mean, really. I'm and old. Well... Well, you're, you're, you're good looking. Uh, let's go over some of them. Sure. Obviously, you did, a, you did a bunch of Marins. Yep. Um, Mystery Science Theater, 3000. Yep. You did some Lady Dynamites. Yep. You did Blackish. Mm -hmm. uh, Stand Against Evil. 
Speechless, mm-hmm. Bless This Mess, Superstore mm-hmm. you directed, mm-hmm. The Goldbergs you directed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. Um, I told uh, you I'm old. You are old. And then most recently, Somebody Somewhere, which I, I talk about that a lot because I love the pilot of that. And I just love that show. You directed yep. five episodes of that. Uh, Damn, right. Seven. Seven? We have yeah. to update your IMDb. Yeah, yeah. Let's start at the beginning because a lot of people sure. ask me this and I have no answer. How does a Canadian start work in this country? Like, there are laws. Uh, there are laws. And uh, I mean, I know that uh, Americans are all about purity. Um, so uh, <laughs> I will say that Canadians, they're almost like Americans. It's almost like we live next door to you guys. South but or north of us? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, I didn't have any aspirations to get into showbiz or even come to the United States. Uh, so I didn't know that. It was, a, it was all a fluke. The whole thing was a fluke. I can certainly condense the journey. Yeah, um, let's hear it. The fast version is uh, I was uh, a bit of a scamp as a young man and uh, was encouraged to live on my own at a young age. And so I lived on my own and I was just a complete screw up. And I grew up in Calgary and um, had no future whatsoever. You were encouraged to live on your own at what age? 15. Why? Were you a handful for your parents? I was a handful because my dad had gotten remarried and the mix was not the greatest mix. So there were two opinions on how things should work in that situation. I was of one opinion and, uh, the, looking my back, dad was of another, do, mm-hmm. but looking back on it, do you realize, do, are you, do you feel like you were wrong as a 15 year old or do you like, no. no, I was right. You were right. I was absolutely right. Interesting. Absolutely right. Um, and so I'm just, you were on your own at 15, dude. I, I couldn't yeah, imagine. I had, I had an apartment. Um, I, I mean, it's not like I suddenly got, was living on my own and figured everything out. I was still a disaster. I just had my own apartment and I was so stupid that for the first month I was like, oh, this is awesome. My party pad. And I had all my buddies over and we were just doing <laughs> stupid things. And then I got the, basically realized I had to pay rent and gas and electric. And I was like, oh my God, like I actually have to pay these bills to live here. And I was delivering pizzas at night. And that was certainly you're going not to school enough. during the day and going to high pizzas. school. Yeah. And oh I God, delivered I pizzas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was a complete, I was a disaster. I had a 75 Dodge Dart that I would deliver pizzas in whatever the weather was. And uh, uh, would like steal gasoline from car lots. Uh, so I could put gas in my car to deliver pizzas. I was a complete idiot. Have you tried pitching this as a show? Uh, no, um, it's just it's so it's, it's interesting in hindsight, but it's also, you know, you could call it, you know, like, uh, it's like Don portrait of a teen runaway. It's like Rob portrait of a complete disaster because every choice I made was wrong. That's why it's a good show. <laughs> well, maybe at some point, but, um, I think I sold a pilot once about my parents' weird divorce and uh-huh. how they lived a block away from each other, but had the same address through it, some fluke. But anyways, I was just drifting around for a while just doing nothing and sort of speeding up to your question. Um, my cousin lived here in LA in the Valley and I, because I was doing nothing in Calgary and had, I was not going to college. I did not have enough credits or interest to go to university. And, um, 
just got in my car one day and left my apartment in Calgary and just threw a bunch of stuff in the car and drove down here to LA to visit my cousin who lived in Van Nuys. And again, like speeding through the boring stuff, I was just going to visit for a couple of days and crash on his couch. And I met this girl that he was going to school with and we, she and I hit it off and I'm like, I'll stay another week mm-hmm. and then I'll stay another week. And then I sort of had this, if you want to use the word epiphany incorrectly, uh, realize like I could go back to Calgary and do nothing, or I could stay here and do nothing with this girl. So I decided to like stick around, um, for, an, uh, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, undetermined amount of time. And then realize I'm kind of living here, but I was, I lived here illegally for many years. And you were like 17? Yeah. How old were you? And you were living here illegally? Yes. For many Interesting. years. Interesting. Yeah. And, but you were working? How did you work then? I worked under the table. Um, I got a bunch of jobs. I think the statute of limitations is over, but I worked <laughs> at um, uh, different restaurants and right. uh, the, I was a security guard at a mall. I sold shoes I fixed yogurt machines. Um, you know, I worked at a yogurt store. I wonder if you fixed uh, Humphrey yogurt. Did, uh, you fix, I, did you fix them? I worked at a place called um, I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, and then they opened up a second store that said, yes, it's yogurt. So they basically, <laughs> they opened up a store that answered a question nobody was asking. No, no one was asking. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I still remember how to, uh, you know, you unscrew those four bolts, and you uh-huh. pull out the assembly, and you take the O-rings off, and you clean them, and then you lube the O-rings. And then you put the thing back in, but, um, it was all, uh, the reality was because I looked and mostly sounded like an American people never asked. And this was pre nine 11 and pre all that stuff. And they just thought I was American and no, not one person asked me for any validating <laughs> ID. Wow. And I, I made up a fake, uh, social security number and got hired. And they, a lot of them just paid me cash under the table. This is perfect. Yeah. Now, and then at some point, well, maybe I'll skip. So, how did you? How did this whole Hollywood thing happen? When did you decide? How did that? When did you decide you want to be? A, I guess a writer, right? Well, I never decided it. I, I, it's such a boring story, and I may actually do it as a pilot. But um, cutting to the chase, I was delivering food for a, a deli that is no longer in business in L.A. Right. And had a lot of clientele that were in show business. And this one guy took a liking to me and um, basically said, you know, if you ever want to get out of the exciting world of late night sandwich delivery, give me a call. Uh, we need PAs. And I didn't know what a PA was. And he explained what it was. So I, I, this is how dopey I was. I was like, yeah, sure. So I'll, I called him up <laughs> and went over to the Fox lot and he explained what a PA was. Uh-huh. And I thought it paid more than working at and this he w- deli. he was a producer? What was he? Producer um, for, I mean, he's still a producer, but producer of The Simpsons, Tracy Ullman Show. Oh, okay. Um, this, he's an amazing guy named Richard Sakai, who right. I, I literally owe everything to. And he hired me um, because I was nice to him when I would deliver food as a PA on The Tracy Ullman Show. And that was the very first time I was exposed to anything in show business whatsoever. And I was assigned to the writer's room. So I was in charge of getting them food and cleaning up and um, And doing runs. Yeah. And it was an amazing writer's room. And that was it. That was the first exposure to it. And then when did you decide you want to start? When did you start writing? I didn't start writing. I was there for the last two seasons of the Tracy Ullman show. And then on the last season, um, I didn't even, I still don't really know how to type. I sort of hunt and peck. 
but I would stay late at night and they were, it was a great writer's room and they were really nice to me. And I just thought these guys seem to be having fun. And one night they were stuck on a joke and that meant they were sticking around, which meant I had to stick around because I had to clean up after them. And I just decided like, I'm going to write down a couple options for this joke and sort of meekly slipped it to one of the writers, this guy, Mark Flanagan, who was incredible. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't mean to step on any toes, but I just I want to go home. Ideas. Yeah. And that was literally, <laughs> I want to go home. And he, they used one of the jokes. And so wow. I got to go home. And then um, I was like, okay, well, I'll try this again. So I, I started to very quietly with months in between side sort of pitch ideas. And then I went in at night after work and uh, read scripts and sort of taught myself how a script is visually structured. Right. And then on the computer would type um, fake scripts just to physically um, format a script. And then because it was a sketch show, I had this idea for a sketch and I just typed it up and it took like a month for me to type up a six page sketch because I was terrified. Right. And they ended up buying it. And wow, uh, it was like $1,600. And um, I got an agent at CAA, but I was still a PA at the Tracy Ullman show. Right. And, and then I thought, again, showing my lack of planning for my life. Uh, it was like, this writing thing seems kind of fun. Like, maybe I'll try it. And that was that was when I had the first inkling that perhaps that was something I may want to try to pursue, but there was no guarantee of success. And then you just continued writing spec scripts and your agent started submitting you places? I wrote a bunch of spec stuff. And then by that point, the Tracy Ullman show was canceled and they switched. It was the same production company as The Simpsons, which was just right. starting. So they switched everybody over to The Simpsons. And then um, because everybody there was so great, when The Simpsons took off, you know, it just was huge out of the gate. They had all these um, weird assignments that they needed help with. Like, uh, can you come up with 50 crank calls for Bart? Can you come up with a promo for this? do the Bartman video that's going to be on MTV. And I'm actually looking the, my very first check sort of professional check uh, over on the wall was for writing the intro that Bart Simpson was going to say on MTV for the do the Bartman video that had Michael Jackson on it. Right. So I got $300 and um, then just started sort of, uh, you know, writing weird things and the, the first actual job that I got was um, I was recommended by one of the writers to these producers named Smith Hemian, and mm -hmm. they were doing a 50th uh, anniversary Bugs Bunny special for CBS. And they needed a writer that knew a lot of stuff about Bugs Bunny. So I had a meeting with them. They hired me for $2,600 to write this whole special. And that was like my first professionally produced credit of something that was I, I was involved in from the beginning to the end. Right. But I'm still a PA. And none of this, see, people ask me like, well, do I have to move to Hollywood to work in Hollywood? And like, right. I mean, this wouldn't happen if you were not in Hollywood. Oh yeah. And it was, everybody says this, but it was absolutely a different time. And uh -huh. I also think that because it was the late eighties, early nineties, um, and things were, there were way more jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. and also because sketch shows were so popular, they needed, people needed little bits and also being around the Simpsons from the beginning, it was great. Like that, um, the do the Bartman thing, uh, I sweated over that for a week and mm -hmm. it was probably four sentences. 
Right. Uh, and I would write like top 10 lists for Letterman and try to send them in like naively thinking here's, here's 20 top 10 lists. Maybe you guys will like them. And I was just, I would stay there late at night in the office on the Fox lot by myself with, you know, feral cats giving birth under the trailer. Um, just writing weird stuff and kind of figuring out the job as I was doing it. And then how did you get the Ben Stiller show? This has got to be also boring. Um, I think it's fascinating. Well, the way I got the Stiller show was um, the Simpsons had taken off and I was still working for Gracie and um, I had an idea for an episode and it was season two of the Simpsons. And so I went and just wrote this episode uh, on spec on my own. And it was basically a Die Hard parody because Die Hard had come out just like a couple of years before that about the power plant where Homer works getting taken over and he inadvertently becomes a hero and saves a power plant. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this whole spec. I turned it into Sam Simon, who was running the show. It's just great. And he loved yeah. it. But what I was told sort of off the record is at that time, Gracie films had a rule where they could not hire writers that were already working for the company in another capacity. It was like this weird archaic rule. So uh, being a ding dong, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, well, screw that. I quit. So I walked over to the main bungalow and spoke to Richard Sky. And I was like, you know what? I think that rule's terrible. And Sam likes my script. And I just think I'm going to try this writing thing. And, and I quit. And they're like, well, we're sorry to have you go. And then as I was walking back across the parking lot to get my stuff, Sam grabbed me. And he's like, I heard you quit. And I said, yes. And he goes, well, now you don't work here anymore. So now we can hire you but we can't use your idea because you pitched it to us when you were an employee. And I was like, that's weird, but cutting to the chase, um, they took me upstairs to the writer's room and they had an index card that just says, uh, Homer invents a drink and Mo steals it. And so they said, we would like you, we loved your script and you've been here since the beginning. Like we'd love you to write an episode. And I was like, absolutely. I was freaking out. And I said like a, an arrogant idiot, I was like, but I want to be involved in the entire process because I knew the process because I was working on the show. And they're like, you got it. And so we broke the whole story and it ended mm -hmm. up being uh, the episode Flaming Moe's. Flaming Mo I didn't know you wrote Flaming Moe's. Wow. Yeah. So I wrote Flaming Moe's and then um, time went by and and uh, it got produced and it was on the air. And the way that I got the Stiller show was I was doing Punch Up on this terrible movie for... Morgan Creek and met this other writer there named Jeff Kahn and Jeff and I hit it off and he's like, Hey, they're shooting this weird pilot at my apartment. You want to go check it out? And I was like, sure. So we went over and it was the pilot for the Ben Stiller show mm -hmm. and Ben was there and he and I hit it off and he was asking what I'd worked on. And I said, this episode that had just come out for the Simpsons called flaming Moe's. And he was like, I love flaming Moe's. You wrote that. So he said, if his, pilot ever became a show he would love to hire me because we he and i had so many similar references in our life we love disaster movies and all this other stuff so we really clicked and then a couple months later the show got picked up and he called me and said i want to hire you and that was my first staff job wow what a tale what a tale I, not it is no i think it's so cool i i've known you all these years i didn't even know that dude and yeah it's then, all flukes it's all flukes it's all yeah but it's also you putting yourself out there and um I don't know. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm very fortunate these flukes happened because but again, also, I hadn't, 
but you put yourself in a position to have these flukes sure. happen too. And yeah, you were but if I hadn't, but I was prepared. But if I hadn't met Jeff that day and we hadn't gone to his apartment, I would not have met Ben, and that wouldn't have led to the show. Right. Which but led you're to also, things. I mean, honestly, and I mean this in a compliment. Like you're one of the better, better connected, more most connected writers I know. You know a lot of people. Like you know, your friend, you're a friendly guy, and you you know a lot of people. I guess maybe because you leave your house. No, but you're you're connected. You know a lot of people. It's just it's. Just I know, but I'm always get... I'm always surprised by who you like. You seem to know more people. <laughs> yeah, but it's only because, um, I just think, uh, I hate this term, but I think the alt comedy scene was starting when you and I were starting off in L.A. Yeah, and because especially because of the Stiller show, that whole crew were so important like janine and david cross and all those guys were so important to the alt comedy scene and then that's where jack black and tenacious d started and all these other people will ferrell like they were all mm -hmm. coming up um that way i just think it was timing of an an era that was happening so but we were, were you just... involved in that like did you do like what do you mean did you go to those shows and stuff like i, oh, yeah, I yeah. did the, the diamond club yeah i mean yeah. it was that was the whole scene like big and tall books the dining club. I didn't club. even know about it back then. Really? Oh my god! Yeah, that was where everybody hung out. Like I even performed in some of those dopey shows just because uh -huh. it was, it was a group of friends that were not um, famous yet that were just doing these weird shows at this place, the Diamond Club in Hollywood, which is gone. Mm -hmm. And um, you could tell it was like, you know, Jack and Kyle. You knew they were amazing, but they were not tenacious to yet. Right. And and Will was not Will Ferrell yet. He was a guy from you know, the Groundlings. And right. um, people were just, you know, Janine and David and uh, uh, Pat Oswald and all these guys that were just... Right, so let's talk about those guys. So they were, sure. it, you know, these are people putting themselves out there. It's not like... Absolutely. They're not saying, hey, I put me in my movie. They're just putting themselves out there. They're doing shows. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just how you do it. And so it's, they're not asking to start at the top. They're starting at the bottom. Yeah, well, I think that's a great point. And I think using the, the Diamond Club shows, the Diamond Club was this horrible, horrible, dumpy club. I, a club is a loose term. That was owned by one of the um, the uh, Stray Cat. Uh, yeah. Uh, was it Stray Cats? Uh, um, I, I, I know the band. The band of Stray Cats. Yeah. It was like Slim Jim Phantom, I think, was the guy who owned the club. Okay. So it was this horrible, decrepit theater that was near La Brea and Hollywood. And it was kind of a um, you can do anything you want kind of place because it was just soaked in like old piss smell and booze. But the good thing was um, a lot of friends of ours, like this friend CJ Arabia, started to put these shows together. And so she would ask everybody in our little group that all hung out and traveled together and dated each other and whatever. It's like, hey, we can do these shows at the Diamond Club. And I'm not a performer, but it would be like we would build entire sets out of corrugated cardboard and paint them because the diamond club didn't care. They just wanted to sell alcohol to people that came to the shows. So there would be like, you know, shows where you look now at the lineup, you're like, Holy crap. That's the, that's like a lineup of insane comedy hitters. Right. But at the time they were not, they were just young weirdos. It's so, because you know, I moved here in 92. I lived right. in West Hollywood. I lived right around the corner. And I'm just, it's amazed how like, we just didn't know each other then, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but you and I actually, and Sievert sort of weirdly intersected with the Wonder Years, unbeknownst to us. I, uh, well, Sievert wrote on that. I didn't. He sold no, the Wonder but, Years. 
No, but you guys and you're credited on my episode. Uh, I'm not. Maybe Sievert. No, no I'm, I didn't work guys. on the Wonder Years. Sievert sold an Sievert sold an episode, a freelance episode of Wonder Years. My partner. Because, yeah, but it's so weird because on screen it's you two and me credited on the episode I pitched to Bob Rush. That he tried to <laughs> rip not off. me, dude. I don't have any credits on the Wonder Years. You gotta if sure? I oh you know, know. Siebert and his old partner. He, yeah, his old partner. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, it was Siebert and his previous partner. I'm surprised he got credit though. Okay. Wow. Well, the, the whole thing was Bob Rush was just stealing ideas left and right. But wow, I, that's interesting. Um, but that's but you, Siebert and but I. But you never wanted past. to. Pref- I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. I cut you off. Go ahead. No, no. I was gonna say I didn't know you were Siebert yet. Right. But on that episode. Siebert and I share credit, even though at the time we were complete strangers. And then I right. really met him when I met you on Just Shoot Me. Right, right. Now, did you you never wanted to perform? I mean, it's funny because no. you have performed, but you never wanted to. I have performed reluctantly. Um, I hate it. And it was like whether it was the Diamond Club show <laughs> or if I've been like an emergency fill-in at the Growlings. It's before I do it, I'm like, hey, this is cool. It's going to like sharpen my brain and it's going to be a great uh thing just jump off the cliff and try and then in the middle of it i'm soaked in sweat and hate myself and then at the end i i'm so relieved it's over <laughs> and i absolutely loathe it i i just shoot me i remember we had you play yes. the dirty bus the dirty bus yep. boy was your character dirty dirty bus dirty, yep. <laughs> dirty. <laughs> dirty bus and you boy. hit it out of the park <laughs> well all i had to do is sort of uh wiggle my eyes lasciviously uh while uh, it was clear the older waitress and i were messing around Oh my God. That was because <laughs> Andy called me in and said, Can you? He's done that so many times where it's like when he had True Jackson, he's like, uh, We need somebody to be the Hobo King. Can you be at Paramount now? And I'm like, Okay. <laughs> but it's not because I love it. I, I hate it, but it's also, it sounds so goofy that if I don't have any lines or something, then I'm fine doing it. But uh, I ended up on so many shows I worked on as a writer being an emergency go to right. that. I, I truly, I truly hate it. I truly hate it. Yeah, but I mentioned Rob is talking about Andy Gordon, who's a writer we've worked with a number of times. Yeah, uh, great guy and hilarious writer. But, hilarious uh, and so uh, funny, like just as a person. Yeah, really witty, really fun. Great really writer. Make you laugh. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and you just had dinner with him. Um, yeah. So fat. Okay. So then you were okay. Then we worked together and just shoot me for many years. We sat, we used to sit next to each other. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, at least. And yep. then, and then what happened was. Years, I remember years later, we were doing a pilot. We were helping out on a pilot. I don't remember who's, do you, do you remember? It, uh, we were on, I remember I ran into, pilot? I don't know. Might've been, might've been a CBS Radford pilot, but, but what happened, so for the people who don't know, so when someone makes a pilot, it's very, at least back in the day, it was very common for the person who created the show to call in their friends as a favor. Hey, can you guys help, you know, sit a couple of days and help me, you know? Right pitch on jokes or do the rewrite or whatever. And as it's courtesy, right. you always say yes. I mean, you just sure. never say no. And you also hope nice... if it's a success, you'll get a job. Yeah, but sometimes you have a job, so you don't even care. But sure. But, sure. but absolutely, you always say yes. And I remember being there um, on the state floor, and I hadn't seen you in a while. And I was like, Rob, what are you up to? And then you said, I was like, so I was thinking you were going to, you know, you had written on a bunch of shows, but you were like, yeah, I'm kind of done. I'm done writing. I want to direct. Mm-hmm. And so what happened there? What was the what made you want to stop writing and start directing? Um, I feel like I, I'm gonna to continue to take long, boring stories and compress them. But um the the quickest answer is I'm so appreciative of the 
the fluke that got me into writing. And I, I was a writer on TV shows for 18 years. Right. And I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity that it provided in all areas. But what was happening would be um, I would be on a show and they would need somebody to go supervise like a shoot on like at you know, the Radford lot, there was that fake New York park. So they would need somebody to go film a scene that's supposedly Central Park. Right. So if they were doing any exterior shoots, I would volunteer to do that. And there's people mm -hmm. we know that are writers that hate being around actors and they just want to stay in the room. <laughs> and I was I was realizing I wanted to get out of the room and mm -hmm. go where the action was. And then I would direct some some friends of mine would do low budget music videos and I would do it for free. And then um, I was kind of building this weird little reel uh, sort of unknowingly. And then other friends of mine that part of those Diamond Club crowds that were now becoming well-known comedy performers were doing movies and they would ask me if I would help write the promos, you know, the commercials for the movies. And foolishly or otherwise, I would be like, yeah, if you if you arrange for me to direct these promos, I'll definitely, I'll write it and I'll do it for free. And they're like, okay. So because they had muscle with the studio, they would be like, Rob's the guy and he's also going to direct it. And the studio's like, whatever you say. Right. So um, I realized that I was really enjoying it. I'm not saying I'm good at it, but I was really enjoying it. And then um, building this sort of very weird reel. And then um, when the writer's strike happened, uh, 2007, 2008, uh, I was walking the picket line and kind of had this feeling in my head, like if I go back into the room, I'm going to stay on the path of being a TV writer probably for many, many, many years. And this is an opportunity I was pretty honest with myself. It's like, what I really, really want to do is be directing, like to make the stuff instead of write the stuff. Right. So, so I decided on the picket line <laughs> that I would kind of hop off the writing train and just try to keep cobbling together these weird little directing jobs. And but that's, I, that was when me, I made the turn. But I remember being on the floor with you on the stage and say, uh -huh. I, I remember this conversation really well. I was like, wow, you're going to be a director. And I said like, so is your, cause you know, Rob's a big shot writer. I said, so is your agent helping you out with this? Right. And what was your answer? Not at all. They wouldn't not at discuss all. it. And they why not? It. Because I was making money for the agency as a writer and they did right. not want to um, go through building me up as a director because they were, um, and it wasn't evil. It was just, right. those were the facts. That's exactly right. And that's, it's not, it's because that's a hard sell. They're not going to push that rock up the hill. They already Correct. have directors and Correct. Rob's a no one isn't direct. He's a no one as a director. Correct. And so you, you were literally starting your career over and the way Correct. you did it was by working for free, you know, Correct. by just doing 100%. it and not asking for permission. You just did it, you yep. know, fi figure out what you can do. And I say this all the time on my podcast and my social media is like, and I use this, I use this as an example, you know, uh, you yep. did it. And then I, so we were, at one point we were running Marin and that's a, and I use you as another example of how to get work there. So I don't remember who contacted who, but we were, Marin was a low budget show, really yeah. super low budget show. And I guess, and how did, how did we get, I don't remember, I don't remember details, but we came in contact again. Hey, it's Michael Jammin. If you like my videos and you want me to email them to you for free, join my watch list. Every Friday, I send out my top three videos. These are for writers, actors, creative types. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm not going to spam you, and it's absolutely free. Just go to michaeljammin.com slash watch list.
know what I think it was? I emailed you guys to congratulate you on the show, and we just mm-hmm. started a dialogue. Um, and then you guys very generously asked what I was doing, and I think that's how we loosely started this conversation. Um, right. But it was you, Sievert, Mark, who I'd known a bit in the past, um, and then was it Serpico or was it? Um, yeah, probably by Serpico. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. I mean, you guys went way out of um, your way to let me have a meeting. Um, but what, but what I remember is in Glendale. Yeah. And what I offices. remember about that meeting was how prepared you were. You came, we met with a lot of directors and we needed directors mm-hmm. who were, were cheap, can do mm-hmm. low budget, who, mm-hmm. and you were, you had, you were all that. I can do low budget because you do right. low budget, you do no budget. Right. Right. And um, you came in super prepared. And I've talked about this before as well. I, I think on my podcast or on social media is like, you blew us away. So what you did is I remember you watched the presentation, which was already shot, and mm-hmm. then you you blocked it. You you drew hit, you drew up diagrams mm-hmm. and you said, This is where I would have this is how I would have shot the presentation. This is where I would have put the cameras. And mm-hmm. see, by doing it this way, you have less setups and right. you don't have to move the camera as much. And because you do because you're being efficient with your setups, you can make your day. You can mm-hmm. get all the shots that you need because I'm not getting a ton of coverage. I'm just getting exactly what I need and I'm getting it fast. And the fact that you took all that time to draw those drawings, you, you know, you proved to us. And I remember you, you walked out and we were like, he's hot. You know, he's the guy. He knows how to do it. Mm-hmm. He, you know, you blew us away. So it, was, it wasn't like we did you a favor. You came in, you were prepared, you know. We- yeah, but I really, I mean, again, I remember that meeting so clearly because I was, I, I, I loved you guys. I thought the presentation was awesome and the show had all this great promise but i loved the vibe of what the show could be and really really wanted that job for those reasons and to work with you guys again but also because i knew there was a way and it was my old writer sort of producer brain thinking like there's limited time there's limited money how can you maximize the writing and the the humor opportunities but your production schedule is so crazy tight how can mathematically you do both things? And right. that's, I remember leaving that meeting and just like, I, I didn't know what else I could have said, but it was really my experience as a writer and a producer, mm-hmm. just like, this is how I would make this more efficient. Not that you guys were inefficient, but it was just how my brain had worked from the writing side. And that's, and I, and that's what we appreciated most about you as a director is that you came from a writer, you're a writer, uh-huh. so you understood the writing, you understood how to be true to the script, how to mm-hmm. service the script. And I got to mm-hmm. say, it was always very easy working with you. It was never, you had never had any ego attached. You were like, hey, is this, how do you like this? You, oh, you don't like that? Well, hi, maybe you like this. It was always, you know, pleasing the client, basically. But uh, you guys were, not only were you my friends, but you guys were the bosses along with Mark. And I, I would say... Um, just, it's not even from a Canadian standpoint, it's like you are hired to visually capture the script that has been written. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's coming in thinking like, here's, I'm going to put my stamp on it, or this is going to be for my reel. It's a mistake because what I, what I love doing, and you guys were great showrunners was if you got, if there was an idea I had, I would happily run it by you because it made it easier if you liked it. And if you said, well, we actually thought about it this way when we wrote it. It's like, that's cool. My job is to visually capture it. Yeah. And and also it's like, 
uh, this scene's running over. So here's a, here's an idea how we can pick up that time. Right. Or Mark has an idea. So it's like, okay, let's honor what Mark is saying. And right. um, that's, to me, it's th- your number one goal is to take the blueprint and build the house. And it was so easy because you guys, we, we all knew each other, but we all came from a writing background. Yeah. And it was, it was like, well, you know, this B story is never going to pay off this way. So what if we just save some time and just make this like a joke instead of a B story or whatever was going on. But I remember, um, right. I was always relieved when you, when you were directing, I was like, oh, this is going to be a good fun week. It's going to be easy. Mm-hmm. It's going to be uh yeah, we'll get what we need. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Wow. I love that show. Yeah. That was, I mean, we had a blast, but it was, yeah, it was low budget. And then, so yeah. what do you say to, cause it's so many people, you know, they do ask me like, well, how do you, how do I become a director? Uh-huh. And so how would you tell people, young people just starting out? I would, I would just every, do what you just did, but go, let's hear what you would say. No, I, I would say, uh, you know, again, to sound like an old man, times have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say the, the number one thing is to show somebody that you have directed something and that can be directing it on your phone or uh, making a short film. There's so many ways to do it inexpensively now with technology. Mm-hmm. There's no excuse. Right. My second answer would be uh, it's to show the people that have written the show or have the script that you can not only be trusted to run the set and get all the scenes and get some options editorially, but that you also aren't literally just filming the script, that you're going to mine some more humor or you have a style that's appropriate. And that's established in the first part that I said, which is make your own reel. You know, like there was a music video I did, uh, the total budget out the door before, way before that was $2,000, like everything. Right. And, um, we were able to, you know, we had three minutes and 25 seconds or whatever it was to do it, but we were able to get some funny stuff within the video and it was for Virgin, uh, records. And the one letter I got back from those, like, we love this video because there's so much funny stuff in it. It wasn't about the song, but it's finding a way to sort of add without putting the spotlight on yourself because the spotlight should be on the script. But once you have your reel, like, okay, how do you, who do you show it to you? If I was doing it today, um, I think you show it to, um, I mean, YouTube is a great example of somewhere that for free, you can exhibit your wares. Mm-hmm. I would say that going it, showing it to an agent is a, is an older route that I think is going to be more frustrating because you can now start a website of yourself, uh, and send it around to people with a click. I think, you know, the great thing about short films is there's so many festivals and a lot of them are online that even if you make a three minute short film, um, for a, a very inexpensive amount of money, you could literally have people around the world see it. Uh, right. after you're done editing it. And so that's what I would do today is write something because if you write it, it gives you extra juice. Mm-hmm. And then you're also not paying a writer. Right. And you and then the way that you saw it as a writer, writers basically direct stuff in their head when they're writing. Mm-hmm. So then take the initiative to film what you saw in your head originally and put down on paper. And then there's so many people that would do favors. Your friend might be an editor and he needs something for his reel. So you make a deal. It's like, if you edit this for me, uh, we'll have a finished product and both of us have something. So I, I would say it's, 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 it's hustle. 
but it's not like that lame thing of you got to hustle. I think it's an iPhone will make something so beautiful. And with an iPhone and a tripod, your costs are going to be your phone and a $10 tripod. And I I say that I go ahead, continue, right? Well, no, I just think there's no excuse to not make stuff, but you want to, you, you want to use the internet. Um, you want to use, uh, film festivals that a lot of them have free submissions and start a website, uh, your own webpage and people will find it. Like they, somebody's going to see it. And as long as you keep adding to it on a fairly regular basis, it's the same as when you and I were starting, you would have to send out a packet and Mm. to meet writers for staffing meetings, they would run to either read your spec half hour or your writing packet. So this is the same thing. It's just your directing packet. Right. Right. I say this all the time. I think people think I'm nuts, but th- yeah, it's just like you stop asking for permission and just do it. Yep. Absolutely. hundred percent. And stop, and stop thinking about starting at the top. How do I sell my, how do I direct for 20th century Fox? No. How do I direct for my neighbor? That's, yeah. that's the question. Yeah. But that's what yeah. I loved about those music videos, not to keep referencing them, but <clears throat> you're the, the greatest thing is when the artist said yes, because I was like, Oh, this is great. I'm going to have a music video in my reel. And then you realize like, that $2,000 pays for catering, pays for editing, pays for a mm-hmm. DP, pays for lighting, pays for location. And you very quickly realize you have no money. But the challenge of that is so great and has so much value, these little jobs that people can take. Because when you do show it to somebody, they go, you made that whole thing for $2,000? That's ex- or, damn, or you I made mean- this short film for $100? And you could, you could, if you have a Mac and an iPhone, you can right. make a film. I said... It's so funny you say it because I say the same exact thing. It's like the less money you spend, the more impressive it is because you're saying- 100%. You know, and, and by the way, no one's going to be impressed by the dolly shot or the special effects you put in because you're not going to, you know, the Marvel movies are going to do that a thousand times better than you can ever yeah. dream of doing it. So yeah. it always comes down to the script and, yeah. and, and how little you can spend. That's the impressive part. Yeah, and I will say not to over compliment you, but whenever I have meetings for directing jobs, the every the shows that they bring up almost every time that they're really curious about are uh, Marin, mm-hmm. Stand Against Evil, which is another IFC show, um, and Somebody Somewhere, which is the Bridget Everett show, which is an incredible group of people that do that, but on a fairly low budget. Yeah. And nobody wants to talk about how you pulled off some amazing big budget production because they know you had a big budget. But if you can show them that you can work lean and mean and you were involved from the ground up, uh, it has so much cred uh, with everybody that to this day, like it happened the other day, people were talking about Marin. They did not mm-hmm. believe what that schedule was like. Yeah. And when I explained it to them, their minds are blown. Yep. They, they can't believe it's possible. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, fast and it is it. possible. Yeah, it was like two or two and a half days for a shoot, which two is two and a half days nuts. for an episode. Yeah, and ordinarily it's like five, right? Or how much? Yeah. Do you have, have you ever directed an episode that was more than five days? I've done one that's six. Okay, um, but the, you know, Marin, the thing that I would say in these meetings is like basically a, a regular work week. You will have completed two episodes, where most shows are barely getting one for a way bigger budget. Yeah, but the right. great thing about the IFC model was they don't give you notes. They stay mm-hmm. out of your way. They're supportive, and they appreciate that you're delivering a television show for peanuts. 
but then right. everybody benefits because they've agreed to embark on a journey where everybody is skin in the game. And that, that I think also will help people get writing or directing jobs. I see. I, I think Siever and I, we, we prefer not that we have, you know, we take whatever work we get, but we prefer working low, low budget for that reason. Yeah. They leave you alone and mm -hmm. you can actually be more creative, but how do you feel when you're like, I would imagine directing a high budget piece would be more stressful and, and, and terrifying. Um, it is, but, uh, because there's more writing on it, but I would say the larger budget stuff that I've directed, and it's not like major movies or anything like that. The, the pace of things is a lot slower because mm -hmm. people have more time and more money. And to me, I love going fast and lean and mean because you still have the amount of money, but why not get five takes at a scene instead of two takes? Right. And, and so if you have more money, it doesn't mean you get lazy. You keep your foot on the gas, but you just get more options. Right. And so I think uh, learning anything, writing or directing anything from the ground up with no resources will make you be more um, creative and more efficient. And people, when they're hiring you, certainly for directing, appreciate how efficient you are because you're basically saying, give me the keys to the bank and I will take care of your money and you'll have five choices instead of two choices. Right. And that's what it comes down to. So when you say nice choices, person. do you mean coverage or do you mean coverage? Takes? Coverage. Takes so, our coverage. You know, Marin, yeah. we would rehearse it as we blocked it. You know, like it was, it's not like we had these long, lazy rehearsals. It was like, okay, guys, we have three hours in the living room. Let's do you have more rehearsals, uh, more rehearsal times on your other shows? Yeah, we had Some, no rehearsal time. Uh, yeah, sometimes, but I also think that's built into the larger budget. So if it's a network single camera show, people can walk away to their trailers and you call them back when you're ready and the lighting director gets everything perfect. And again, like with Joe Kessler, who was our awesome DP on Marin, mm -hmm. that guy works so well, just like run and gun, run and gun. Yep. And there's ways to make stuff look great. And also Mark, who's not a trained actor was delivering some really heavy stuff mm -hmm. and people are finding it as they go because I think that team mentality, if you're writing or directing, everybody's on board. They, they've signed up understanding what the job is. And uh, once people chip in, uh, it's gonna make it a better experience in every area. Now you, I'm changing gears here, but you sure. also do a lot of, um, like this Dr. Z show, like you do right. a lot of, it's like you do commercial work, but you also do like bizarre passion projects on the side, mm -hmm. right? So talk about like that, like what, what's, what's. Well, hanging with Dr. Love? Z. Yeah, it was during the pandemic and Dana Gould and Pete Aronson and I are friends and we just, everybody was stuck inside and a lot of work had gone away because of the pandemic. And we just started talking and kind of came up on the fly of the show and realized we could make our own YouTube channel. And if we put the money together ourselves, then we're the studio. So nobody's going to stop us because we're paying for it. Right. So Dana does this incredible Dr. Zayas uh, impression. And we were like, what if Dr. Zayas hosted the Mike Douglas show, but he was sort of like a cheesy Sammy Davis Jr. guy. And we would call in favors with friends of ours who would be real guests, shoot them remotely and make 10 episodes. And it was right. truly 
a fun project during COVID. And we ended up, you know, uh, however you could describe having a small but interested following, um, making season one of Hanging with Dr. Z and we use the internet and Instagram and, and all that stuff, which led to us having a really successful Kickstarter campaign for season two. And the budget, I wouldn't even use the word shoestring. I would say mm -hmm. it was like a photocopy of a shoestring. But I love doing weird, silly stuff. And um, a lot of it is improvised and it, it just tapped into all of our favorite ways to do stuff. But it was right. working with friends, you know, during a pandemic. Right, right. People have friends and you do projects with your friends, right? Yeah. And we, we, we have not made one penny on that show. We, we have lost money on it, but w willingly, because it, going what I said earlier, we could guarantee it would exist because we were creating it and paying for it. So there's nothing stopping us. Why not? Like, why not do it? People often say to me, like, you know, they want, or they want me to read this. They want me to make their career. Yeah. And it's like, you don't need me to make your career. You need a, a three funny friends or three friends with a similar vision. Yeah. Do something with them. And, and that's exactly yeah. how you, that's how you started. That's how I started. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I say stop asking for, uh, stop begging for permission and just start, you know, doing it. Just do it. The thing that, like using Hanging with Dr. Z as an example, and only because it's something that I was involved in, that came out of, um, uh, some friends of ours who were politically active when the elections were happening, the 2020 elections. Mm -hmm. And there was a group that had reached out to my friend Colin to make um, a campaign to stop Mitch McConnell. And so they asked Dana and I, like, could you guys help us out? And there's zero money involved, but are you guys interested? So Dana and I just started to shoot the breeze and we thought, let's just shoot Dr. Zayas basically talking about why Mitch McConnell should be stopped. We shot it in his backyard <laughs> and um, his girlfriend at the time played Nova and he played Dr. Zayas and we did it in front of a, a green screen sheet and we knew we were gonna put the Statue of Liberty from Planet Apes behind him and uh -huh. shot a political ad in two hours. Right. And then we had so much fun with that and the, this little weird ad kind of did well enough within the small circle of people that love Dr. Zayas political ads that that's what led us to talking about the talk show. But again, it was just homemade. And my point is, I think whether people call it a passion project or whatever they want to call it, if they have an idea and they write it or they direct it or they do both, you immediately eliminate people saying you can't do it because you did it. But more importantly, the people that could give you other opportunities respect the fact that you did it and didn't wait around for somebody to give you an opportunity because right. you will get the opportunities by creating your own opportunities. And that's, that's one thing I always admire about you. You're, you're very entrepreneurial that way. And it's like, yeah, you well, follow your heart. Yeah. But I'm also convinced like as fluky as my career started, I'm convinced that it's going to end. Every job will be my, my last. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to keep more plates spinning. Uh -huh. um, but I also love, you know, like whether it's, you know, somebody somewhere is such an amazing experience because of Bridget and Hannah and Paul who created it and Carolyn Strauss and HBO. And it is the nicest group of people and the most enjoyable environment where you can, every single person on that show in rural Illinois is there because they want to be there. Mm -hmm. And that energy 
drives that show um, where people watching it on TV can feel that vibe. Right. And, and whatever people think of that show, it's like summer camp where every year you get together and people are so excited to take very little money to be part of this experience. Right. And that the same thing can happen with person X deciding they want to make a short film or they want to make fake commercials or whatever, because they're going to set the tone and they're going to create the vibe. So I think it's a mistake if somebody's like, I only want to do cool stuff or, you know, nobody's going to let me do my ideas. It's like, yeah, you're not letting yourself do your ideas. So when you mm -hmm. told me you were starting your course, I'm like, the biggest obstacle to somebody making anything these days is the person who's bitching about it. Yeah, that was because, me. Yeah. No, but, but it's all doable. Can you guarantee success? No, but you will gain amazing respect and opportunities by having it be tangible instead of complaining about it. Yeah. 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 And that's just a fact. That's just a fact. Well, where it do is. you see, where do you, because the industry has changed so much since we started. What, I don't know. What's, yeah. what's your prognosis for the future? What do you see? People ask me this, like, I don't know. Um, I think what does things, the present look like? Well, I don't know, but I think it's quite obvious that streamers are the future and broadcast networks are not the future. Mm -hmm. So you and I were lucky enough to start in sort of part of the glory days of the nineties when, mm -hmm. you know, you had multiple staffing meetings, you know, you just, it'd be that sort of dating circuit for a few weeks where you would bump into people going in and out of offices and you started off like having four offers and then it would be two offers and then it would be mm -hmm. one offer. And then it goes from you hoping you do get an offer or hoping you get a meeting and you could see the tide has turned. So to me, the future is definitely streaming and uh, smaller budgets, shorter orders. Mm -hmm. And if somebody is expecting it to go back to um, people paying you a lot of money to do 22 episodes of a TV show a year, I think that is very foolish. Yeah. In my opinion, because it'll never go back to that. Yeah. Yeah. But it shouldn't go back to that. Well, it is what it is, but, but no, but uh, there's no more must see TV. Like, right. You know, right. look at the Emmys, like, it's the, the show with the biggest amount of TV stars on it that just aired had the lowest ratings ever. And it's not mm -hmm. because of one person. It's because they've lost their viewership. Right. It's the, they're not going to get it back. People aren't going to wake up one day and go, gosh, I can't wait to watch this award show on broadcast. Like those right. days are over. Right. And so it's always about it's about hustling. It's about getting work, looking for the next job, mm -hmm. about doing your own stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and at the end of the hustle. day. It's got to be, it's also has to be good. Whatever you're working on, like, you know, it has to be great. Right. Well, I mean, look, I've done, uh, more than my share of crap and, um, largely in my own hand. And I think that an opportunity is an opportunity. You know, there's a lot of credits I don't have on my IMDB page because the show is either a deeply unpleasant experience or it's such a crappy show. You would spend so much time explaining it to people that they would fall asleep. And so the reason I've called those credits is because it's, I'm grateful for the experience, but it was a stepping stone to right. what, what I wanted to do. And if I hadn't taken crappy show X, it wouldn't have led to a more positive thing. And, and I think like what you're doing is encouraging people to pursue an idea that they really believe in and learn the basics of how to write it and shoot it. And mm -hmm. just 
that small amount of initiative, even if you never show your project to anybody, you've made it. It's it's an immense amount of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. That's right. Incredible. That's exactly right. And if, I, I said that as well. And if you didn't enjoy it, then this Hollywood thing is not for you. Because if you're not enjoying right. it for free, you're not going to enjoy it when someone's paying you. Just, you're you're just going to get money for it. That's it. Yeah. So. And there's people that do that and they make a fortune. But it's also, you know, like, not to keep talking about when you and I started, but mm-hmm. Just Shoot Me was in the 90s. And if you said NBC in the 90s had so many comedies, some were good and some were terrible. But now if you look at NBC, are they doing any comedies? Like maybe two? I, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's the same place, but it's the, the tide is clear. So yeah. for somebody to aspire to working on um, wacky, old-timey NBC comedies, it's very foolish. However... If they are a self-starter and and determine what their roadmap is, nobody will stop them. You can't guarantee right. success, but at least you've tried it and you might be successful trying it and pursue right. what you like. See, Rob Cohen is <laughs> Rob Cohen. Everyone is is there something where is there something what, what is there something people can do to follow? What do you what do you what do you want to can we plug something about what you're doing? Can we no no. Can no, I mean, you? I'm not on social media. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I just, I, I'm genuinely uh, appreciative of the projects that invite me to be a small part of it. And those yeah. happen, you know, here and there. And uh, there's nothing to really follow. Um, but I, I just think um, I'm excited to see this on your your podcast, you've built a great following. I'll say this. When I need a pick-me-up, when I need a little encouragement, I call you mm-hmm. <laughs> to kick me in the ass. Right. So I, you're just a great dude, and I appreciate you so much and for coming on and for sharing what you thought was what was boring, but it was not boring at all. I, I learned some things about you. Yeah, I, I was a things. disaster as a young man, and now I'm an older disaster. <laughs> not so. No, wow. but what you're what you're doing, I know you're wrapping it up, but I Well, that's okay. I I don't want to take more of your time, but, but go ahead. No, you're not. Just, you're not. I'm you've got as as long as you want. Um I I really think that uh if somebody wants to be a writer or a director mm-hmm. or producer or an editor, then do it. Like again, you don't have to show it to anybody, but if somebody writes something really great, you can show it to people and someone will recognize that you have talent. But nobody's going to be able to know anything about what you want to do if you haven't, if you can't manifest it. Right. So, um, you know, again, like when you guys gave me that opportunity on Marin, unbeknownst to me, it it was a huge help in me getting my next directing job because right. it it legitimized me as a director. And then the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But if I hadn't had that opportunity, it would be a struggle until... There was another opportunity, right? So you it want to happen eventually, opp- yeah. But you want to be prepared for those opportunities, right? Right. Um, so I just think that's just common sense. But what you're doing now, like if I told you you're going to be doing this five years ago, you would you would laugh. I would have said absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Wisdom, Rob. Hustle, hustle, muscle. Yeah. That's it. I can't thank you I enough for it. coming on. Coming on Anytime, the show, man. Um, thank you for being my first guest. I, I didn't. I 
I'm surprised I let you talk so much. I thought maybe I'd be doing all the talking. <laughs> no, I'm surprised I talk so much. <laughs> I'm surprised I let you get a word in edgewise. Yep. I talk a lot. Uh, dude, thank you so much again. And, Anytime. And I love it. Don't go anywhere. We're going we're gonna to have a post-mortem wrap-up after sure. this. But sure, thank sure. you, everyone, for listening. And uh, until next time. This has been an episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jamin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing this podcast with someone who needs to hear today's subject. For free daily screenwriting tips, follow Michael on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Michael Jamin Writer. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Phil A. Hudson. This episode was produced by Phil Hudson and edited by Dallas Crane. Until next time, keep writing.